Well, the best laid plans always get interrupted. We have been waiting and waiting for the Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit to weigh in on whether former President Donald Trump has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution, and finally it has. So today there's more to say about this unanimous opinion from three judges of the Court of Appeals. Let's situate ourselves in place, time, and purpose. We're in federal court in Washington, D.C. as part of what we have been calling kind of the January 6th criminal prosecution of the former president. Four charges in this case, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. by overturning election results, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct the certification of the electoral vote, and conspiracy against the rights of people to have their votes count. In response to this indictment, the former president filed multiple motions to dismiss. The heart of his argument is that he is absolutely immune from prosecution for things he might have done while he was president. The district court judge, Tanya Chutkin, denied his motion to dismiss. We discussed her opinion in another episode, and we'll link it here if you haven't listened to it. Judge Chutkin's work was excellent, and I really think it's worth spending time with. So Trump appealed her order. And when he did, the special counsel did something pretty unusual. He went to the Supreme Court and asked the Supreme Court to bypass the Court of Appeals and go ahead and take this case on an emergency basis. The case was scheduled to go to trial on March 4th, and Jack Smith's office really wanted to keep that trial date. But the Supreme Court declined. Now, I happen to think that was the right thing to do. I think that the country in the long term is best served by keeping as much normalcy as possible in an abnormal situation. But that might be indicative of my personality more than anything else. So the Court of Appeals takes the case, and the D.C. Circuit immediately scheduled it for oral argument. That was a very memorable oral argument. We talked about it on the show. I know Sarah discussed it in the Good Morning News Brief. It seemed like the Court of Appeals was going to move with a lot of speed, and they did, but not as fast as anyone really expected or hoped. And so as days turned to weeks after that oral argument and we still did not have a decision, Judge Chutkin realized there was no way to keep the March 4th trial date. So she has officially removed that date from her public calendar because she has other cases that need to go to trial. Yesterday, we received the opinion from the panel hearing this case. And I'm going to go through this opinion in some detail, even though I admit there isn't really anything new here. I'm going to go through it in detail for two reasons. One, it's just important. I don't think we can think too long or hard about the bedrock principles of separation of powers. And the second reason is that if I had to make a prediction about what might happen next in this case, I would predict that the Supreme Court leaves this opinion in place, that it just doesn't take the case. Remember that in the vast majority of cases in our system, parties are entitled to one appeal. Trump has received that one appeal that he's entitled to from the Court of Appeals. Now, he will almost undoubtedly ask the Supreme Court to take this case, but it does not have to. And if it doesn't, the ruling of the Court of Appeals will stand. And I think that is the best case scenario for the Supreme Court. I think that's why the Court of Appeals took its time writing an opinion that feels rock solid. If the Supreme Court takes this case just to affirm the D.C. Circuit, 
And I really struggle to see how it could find a legal basis to do anything other than affirm this opinion that we're going to discuss. It will look like the Supreme Court is doing Trump's bidding by just allowing the case to be delayed. If the Supreme Court takes this, it will have to be briefed and argued, and the court will have to write an opinion. And the months will tick by and we'll get closer and closer to the election without a trial. And that will look very, very bad for the court. At several other pivotal moments in Trump's journey through the court system, the Supreme Court has declined to get involved and just let the lower court ruling stand, and I really think that's what it is likely to do here. Just my speculation and opinion, but I think this is likely to be the final word on this matter, so I want to go through it in detail. So let's get to the panel. We have three judges hearing this, Judge Karen Henderson, who is 79 years old. She was first appointed to the district court by Ronald Reagan in 1986 and then appointed to the Court of Appeals by George H.W. Bush in 1990. Judge Henderson is from South Carolina, as is her colleague who heard this case, Judge J. Michelle Childs. Judge Childs was first appointed to the district court by President Obama in 2010 and then to the Court of Appeals by President Biden in 2022. You might remember her name. She was on the short list for the seat now filled on the Supreme Court by Justice Jackson. And she was the favorite choice. It was reported of Jim Clyburn, a close confidant and advisor to President Biden and a member of the House of Representatives. Judge Childs is 57 years old, and she was the first Black woman partner at a major South Carolina law firm. And then our third judge is also a woman, Judge Florence Y. Pan. She was appointed by President Obama in 2009 and then to the circuit court by President Biden to replace Judge Jackson, who is now Justice Jackson. Judge Pan is also 57 years old. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Taiwan. So three women— of different backgrounds, 57, 57, and 79 years old. Just a a lot of interesting demographic information about these judges. And one judge appointed by conservative Republicans and two judges who were appointed more recently by Democrats. Okay. This opinion is written per curiam. So it's a unanimous vote. These three judges all agree, and they have chosen to speak with one voice. Instead of having one of them author the opinion and the other two join in it, they have said, this reflects the judgment of the entirety of the court, and we're not going to tell you anything else. And I think that's another reason that this probably took so long. When the court wants to speak with one voice, there is careful negotiation that takes place about what comes through on the page. Okay, I want to just start with the the headline sentence. For the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become Citizen Trump with all of the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. We haven't had a trial yet, and President Trump has asked for the indictment to be dismissed. And so the court is in a posture where it has to accept all the allegations of the indictment as true. So Trump has to show that he wins, even if everything in the indictment is absolutely correct. The court begins with a pretty lengthy discussion of its jurisdiction, its power to decide this right now, because normally a court would not hear an appeal from a criminal case before the case has started. 
We're going to skip that jurisdiction portion today because the court decides that it has the power to reach the merits. And I don't think that's controversial. I don't think it would be good for anyone for this case to go to trial and then after the fact, Trump raised the immunity issue and it be appealed. So we're going to focus our attention on the merits of the argument, not the jurisdiction aspect today. Trump claims absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for all official acts undertaken as president. And he says that category of official acts undertaken as president includes every single bit of the conduct alleged in the indictment. Now, the D.C. Circuit tells us that this is a question of first impression, which is something that could cut against what I said about the Supreme Court not taking this case. The Supreme Court has previously held that even a sitting president is not immune from responding to criminal subpoenas issued by state and federal prosecutors. And it has said that former presidents are absolutely immune from civil liability for official acts, which includes any conduct falling in the outer perimeter of official responsibility. So both current and former presidents are shielded from civil liability for things they did as president, but both current and former presidents are civilly liable for private conduct, things that fall outside that outer perimeter of their official responsibility. In considering all of those civil cases, the Supreme Court has carefully noted that its holdings on civil liability do not carry over to criminal prosecutions because criminal prosecution is different. So former President Trump is asking the court for the very first time to hold that a former president is categorically immune from federal criminal prosecution for any act conceivably within the outer perimeter of executive responsibility. And he says that three constitutional principles support his argument. First, that the courts, created by Article Three of the Constitution, lack the power to review the president's official acts under the separation of powers doctrine. Second, that immunity is required to prevent the courts from intruding on the executive branch. And third, that the impeachment judgment clause doesn't permit the criminal prosecution of a former president if Congress did not impeach and convict him. So let's start with separation of powers. The president is vested with executive power to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that power sits alongside Congress's powers to make the laws and the court's power to say what the law is. Courts have already decided many times that the separation of powers doctrine is not a magic bubble that protects the president from any exercise of jurisdiction over the president by the courts. The court writes, properly understood the separation of powers doctrine may immunize lawful discretionary acts, but does not bar the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for every official act. A lot of constitutional law makes a distinction between discretionary and ministerial acts. When an official is doing discretionary actions, they're using judgment, and they are accountable by virtue of the political process and to their own conscience as a moral matter. Ministerial acts are those that are not discretionary, where an official just has a duty that the legislature has imposed on the official, and the official has to perform the duty whether the official likes it or not. And for those ministerial acts, absolutely courts can compel them to perform the duty, and they are subject to liability if they don't. So when a president is bound by federal criminal law, 
the court can get involved. That's ministerial. We have lots of cases on this point where the court has said to a president or a member of the executive branch, you are not allowed to violate a statute. The court has said that if it couldn't tell the president no, it would be clothing the president with a power entirely to control the legislation of Congress and paralyze the administration of justice. The court says the Congress is the legislative department of the government. The president is the executive department. Neither can be restrained in its action by the judicial department, though the acts of both, when performed, are in proper cases subject to its cognizance. And this really gets us to a case that every law student has to study, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. In that case, the Supreme Court said that President Harry Truman had exceeded his constitutional authority, and the court invalidated an executive order under which President Truman seized control of steel mills. In that case, the court said, when the president takes measures incompatible with the expressed or implied will of Congress, his power is at its lowest ebb. And the court has over and over said no person in this country is of such high office that the person is above the law. The Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed that presidents are not immune from criminal subpoenas issued by state and federal prosecutors. The court has said, we have 200 years of precedent establishing that presidents and their official communications are subject to judicial process, even when the president is under investigation. The separation of powers has to mean that the judiciary can oversee prosecution of a former president when the former president has defied the laws of Congress. Now, we have pages and pages of analysis from the court after this telling us that this is true for legislators and judges, too, that everybody who holds office has some latitude to make choices while they're in office and not be taken to court over it, but not for crimes. The bottom line is this. Former President Trump lacked any lawful discretionary authority to defy federal criminal law, and he is answerable in court for his conduct. The court next gives us a section with the heading Functional Policy Considerations. Most constitutional law is about balancing interests. And so this Functional Policy Considerations section says, how do we balance the interests served by allowing this prosecution to continue against the danger of allowing this prosecution to continue? Trump says the danger is that now the floodgates are going to be opened. All former presidents will be prosecuted for some crime because he has been indicted. Every future president will be, and every future president will constantly worry about that, and that will keep them from being able to do the job well. And in response, the court cites a 1982 Supreme Court case with this gem of a sentence. The chance that now and then there may be found some timid soul who will take counsel of his fears and give way to their repressive power is too remote and shadowy to shape the course of justice. I love that. The law is often concerned with chilling effects. We don't want to chill free speech, for example, but we want to chill some things. We want to chill criminal conduct. There is a structural benefit to deterring abusive power when presidents know that they could be criminally charged for breaking the law. And the court says recent history tells us that presidents, including former President Trump, have not seemed to believe they are wholly immune from criminal prosecution 
Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, and both of them appeared to believe that was necessary to avoid Nixon being indicted. Before leaving office, Bill Clinton agreed to have his law license suspended for five years, and he paid a $25,000 fine to avoid criminal charges. During his impeachment proceedings, former President Trump's lawyers argued that the appropriate vehicle for investigating, prosecuting, and punishing incitement of insurrection was the courts. Trump's lawyer said, we have a judicial process and an investigative process to which no former office holder is immune. The court quotes District Judge Chutkin's observation that every president will face difficult decisions. Whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. To Trump's slippery slope argument that because he is being prosecuted, everyone will be. The court writes something that I think could be summed up as not everyone is as morally bankrupt as you are. It doesn't say that, but the court says prosecutors have ethical obligations. They can't just go around making up crimes. Grand juries operate within strict parameters. There are lots of safeguards in the system to prevent a tidal wave of politically motivated prosecutions. The court says some evidence of that is present in the fact that this is the very first time in our entire history that a former president has been federally indicted. It's hard to argue that this is just a thing we do and that we'll do it all the time forever. And on the other side of the scale is the public's interest in enforcing criminal law and the Constitution's interest. The court calls this a profound Article II interest in the enforcement of federal criminal law arising from Section 3, the Take Care Clause. The president is required to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. That means that the executive is responsible for investigating and prosecuting criminal violations. This clause signals that our government is a government of laws, not of men. And we submit ourselves to rulers only if under rules. I love this part of the opinion. The court says, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. And while we're talking about constitutional design, we have a clear one for determining the results of an election. And we have the Electoral Count Act, and we have Article II's mandate that the president hold office during the term of only four years. We have the 20th Amendment reinforcing that a presidential term ends at noon on January 20th when a successor's term begins. Once that power is transitioned, the former president returns to the mass of the people. The Constitution tells us that executive power vests in a president, not the president. I want to read this paragraph to you in full from page 38 of the opinion. The president, of course, also has a duty under the Take Care Clause to faithfully enforce the laws. This duty encompasses following the legal procedures for determining election results and ensuring that executive power vests in the new president at the constitutionally appointed time. To the extent former President Trump maintains that the post-2020 election litigation that his campaign and supporters unsuccessfully pursued implemented his take-care duty, he is in error. Former President Trump's alleged conduct conflicts with his constitutional mandate to enforce the laws governing the process of electing the new president. So, The public has an interest in checking presidential power through presidential elections. It has an interest in the peaceful transition of power from one president to the next. 
The court says if the government proves this case against Trump, his actions were an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role, the counting and certifying of the Electoral College votes, thereby undermining the constitutionally established procedures and the will of the Congress. To immunize former President Trump's actions would further aggrandize the presidential office already so potent and relatively immune from judicial review at the expense of Congress. At bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Court says that in deciding this, it acts not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. So that's the big issue. And then the court dispenses relatively quickly with the impeachment judgment argument. Remember that Trump says, well, since the Senate did not convict me, I can't be criminally prosecuted. The impeachment judgment clause has two parts. It tells us that all the Senate can do in terms of sentencing is remove a president from office and disqualify him in the future. And then the second part is that these limited consequences of impeachment do not immunize convicted officers from criminal prosecution. And Trump reads these two parts to presuppose that a president is not criminally liable unless the Senate has convicted. And the court says that is a tortured interpretation that runs counter to the text and the structure and the purpose of this clause. The court says a lot more about this, but I think that's probably all we need to say today, especially because Judge Chutkin did such an excellent job explaining this part of her decision. And then Trump argues that double jeopardy principles bar his prosecution because he was impeached for the same or closely related conduct. Now, this makes absolutely no sense in light of the last argument, right? Because in the last argument, Trump says, well, I could only be criminally prosecuted if the Senate convicted me. And here he says, well, since I've already been tried based on this conduct, double jeopardy protects me. It's all just another way of saying there's no way to have any criminal liability for me, Donald Trump, because I'm so special. This court says very plainly, Double jeopardy impedes multiple criminal prosecutions for the same offense, but impeachment is not a criminal proceeding, and the indictment does not charge the same offense as the House's article of impeachment. So all in all, the court unanimously affirms Judge Chutkin's decision, and I truly hope that this will be basically the end of it, but we will see what the Supreme Court does and continue to follow it here. And if you have any questions, as always, please let me know.